must be a kind of blind love I can't see anyone but you On this very special Valentine's Day episode of So Have You Seen, we are going to take a look at some of our favorite romantic couples from the superhero genre, going as far back as their comic book storylines to their motion picture adaptations. I am Noel Cruz. Your incredibly romantic host on Valentine's Day. Using my romance DJ voice, which is absolutely ridiculous, but it's Valentine's Day. So, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you guys? I've missed you. I know I've been away a little bit longer than I should. For that, I am sorry. I've um, been having a little bit of time. Uh, I, I don't want to say a difficult time. I, that, that a little bit of a challenging time. Um, trying to find certain topics to discuss. Um, primarily, again, because when I started this podcast, I wanted to do it as almost like a weekly you know, commentary or review on a certain film or TV show or what have you. Now, there are certain things that are going on. Um, there is a bit of news today as well. There's quite a bit of news going on this from this past week. But given the restrictions of COVID-19 and theaters, at least in New York City, the majority of theaters being closed, and we've had, you know, a couple of things here and there sprinkled about um, Wonder Woman 1984 that has streamed and some other projects and TV shows like the second season of The Mandalorian. Uh, I've been able to review and touch on that. You'll notice that a lot of the stuff that I've reviewed are films from the past. I, last week, I did Batman and Batman Returns. The weekend before that, I did X-Men and the uh, prequel X-Men films. So, again, my intention is that once we kind of get back to, you know, the world spinning and the movies being released as they should, these episodes of the podcast would be a lot more consistent. I give you my word on that. But... Uh, I hope you guys don't mind my little uh, time off. Believe me when I say I, I did miss you. And I had to pay homage to Valentine's Day. I'm a little bit of a romantic guy. So I was like, what better way to do this week's episode than to take a look at, you know, the relationships and the couples that have been throughout comic books pretty much since its inception. I mean, for every... Superman, you have his Lois Lane. For every Batman, you have his Catwoman. For every Iron Man, you have his Pepper Potts. And for every Peter Parker, you have his Mary Jane. And in a predominantly male-driven industry, <clears throat> excuse me, that the comic books were at the very beginning, you know, there were hardly any women writers or artists or, I mean, I cannot really think of back in the 40s and 50s and maybe even 60s women contributing to comic books as much as they do now. So it was very interesting. All of these relationships were kind of looked through a male perspective. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there were writers out there that had the presence of mind to 
take these female characters and and give them great significance especially to you know these heroes and and make their life either more fulfilling or to give them more substance um so we're gonna do kind of like a quick rundown of some of my favorite comic book romances and how they've translated to film uh as you know it's sunday so i'm having my sunday afternoon coffee i hope you have your beverage of choice with your loved one on valentine's day mm. and for those of you who don't have that special someone i love you i love you deeply you guys have gotten me to a little bit over 1000 plays and believe me when i say for that my love for you is eternal and i am forever grateful all right um to start off uh, moving forward there's quite a bit of news going on this past week um we're getting closer to Zack snyder's release of justice league um today he just dropped another trailer like a like a really kind of meaty trailer there was a lot more to it this time around i honestly want to stop seeing trailers for this movie because I'm afraid that he's going to show everything that he's kind of done. I mean, maybe not. The movie's scheduled to be four hours long. It's going to be streaming on HBO Max. So if you are an HBO subscriber, you get HBO Max for free. You just have to download it to your Apple TV, to your Amazon Prime, I think. You could download it to. You could download it to your PlayStation. You could download it to your phone. When you sign in with your uh, cable provider... You have HBO Max, so you'll be able to see it very much so if you've already experienced this with Wonder Woman. Uh, I love it. I think the app is great. I've seen Wonder Woman 84, which wasn't so bad. Uh, Denzel Washington did a movie called The Little Things with Rami Malek. Um, Bit of a disappointing movie. I mean, great actors, but the movie just kind of fell flat for me. Um, A movie that I did just see this past weekend, and I highly recommend not a superhero movie, but it literally threw me back. It was a powerful, powerful film to watch. It's called Judas and the Black Messiah. And one hell of a cast. A lot of excellent young up-and-coming actors. Um, just amazing. The writing, the acting. Seriously, one of the best things I've seen all year. Uh, so definitely give it a look out. Uh, Judah, Judas and the Black Messiah. But um, on March 18th, Zack Snyder is going to release his definitive version of Justice League. So as I've spoken before, uh, Zack Snyder pretty much was supposed to do this film. He had to back away for a multitude of reasons, two of which, excuse me, is that he, one, was having a bit of a hard time with Warner Brothers because Batman versus Superman did great numbers financially, critically, it was panned. Um, Wonder Woman was about to come out and they kind of wanted to take it into a different direction than he wanted. So the universe that he had built up in his mind because of the backlash of Batman versus Superman was now kind of in jeopardy. So he continued with Justice League. I think it was something on... Warner Brothers and and on his end that they just wanted to wrap this movie up and kind of get it over with. Um, regrettably and unfortunately, during this time frame, Zack Snyder's daughter 
committed suicide. So he backed away from the project completely. And then they brought in Josh Whedon, who is the guy who's done Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who did the first two Avenger films to great both critical and financial success. And they kind of brought him in to finish out Justice League. My honest opinion, that film, the Josh Whedon version, wasn't terrible. You could tell it was rushed. I mean, maybe I was just happy to see all of those superheroes on screen together for the first time. But you can kind of see where the film is flawed. You could kind of see where things were rushed or things were sacrificed or creative changes were made. Again, I did not think it was terrible. Um, Not a perfect film. Definitely better than Suicide Squad. And that says a lot. But now Zack Snyder has gone back. He's, you know, there was a petition that started, I want to say, about two years ago called Release the Snyder Cut that built quite a bit of momentum. And now he got the chance to do it. So he's doing this with a film that's going to be four hours long. That's kind of ballsy, if you ask me, because... The the Avengers Endgame film, which is, in my humble opinion, probably one of the greatest superhero films ever made. Definitely the greatest superhero finale. This is like the Godfather, the Ten Commandments, Mary, not Mary Poppins, what is it? The Sound of Music. This is like all the greatest films wrapped up into one for a superhero film ending. I mean, this, if you saw this on opening night, you know what I'm talking about because people were literally clapping and it was like a rock concert. It was amazing. It was, it was a moment I'll never forget to this day. I'll never forget it. And I still feel a certain way about it when I watch it. But again, the movie was three hours long. So there was quite a bit of a buildup to this finale. Zack Snyder is going to push his film an additional hour. And that kind of makes me nervous. Because I just think that he he also has a tendency, if you look at Batman versus Superman, to kind of oversaturate things. He kind of overdoes it unnecessarily. Visually and aesthetically, the guy's a beast. Because honestly speaking, and I'll say this to my dying day, Batman is the most beautiful version of the character I've ever seen in the Ben Affleck sense, in the in the in the suit and the way he fights that is the most accurate Batman I've ever seen. With all due respect to Christian Bale, who was unbelievable, and to Michael Keaton, who pretty much started everything. Superman, Henry Cavill, looks absolutely amazing, but he just, like, Zack Snyder is the kind of guy that he'll, like, he'll make pancakes, and then he'll put syrup on it, and it'll be perfect, and then for some reason he'll just get up, and he'll put honey on top of it, and then he'll put chocolate syrup on top of the honey and then he'll sprinkle some brown sugar on top of it and by the end of it you're in a diabetic coma and you're dead so he needs to just leave syrup on it this time and just back away but he's shown some clips if you guys haven't seen it go to youtube and check it out uh zach snyder's justice league it's the most recent trailer out i think it's trailer two we'll see moving forward um, in other news as well, um, as you guys know, in my previous episodes, I've reviewed the Disney plus TV show, the Mandalorian, which was just mind blowing, man. 
It really was. I don't think anybody saw this coming. I mean, with The Mandalorian, I think people expected it to be a fun show. People were craving something Star Wars after, in all honesty, the the under underwhelming trilogy that just passed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, people wanted something Star Wars, something nostalgic, something that was new yet stayed true to the story because of the, the debacle that the last trilogy was. I'm, I really don't want to trash or berate the last trilogy because, again, I, I, I say time and again that The Force Awakens started out with so much promise. And then it just took a titanic of a dive with The Last Jedi. And then The Rise of Skywalker to me was nothing much than a band-aid to fix what the previous film did. And I'll always feel that way because it was to me, it was a, a trilogy that was never properly fulfilled. And there is nothing greater to testify to what I am saying and proof than The Mandalorian. Okay, because the show was absolutely outstanding. Um, the first season w delivered greatly. The second season literally left people with their jaw dropped, screaming at their TVs in disbelief, jumping and dancing, you know, in the streets of of Endor or or. Bespin, actually, there are no streets in Bespin. That's a cloud planet. You'd all fall to your death if you try to dance in the street. But moving on, The Mandalorian, unbelievable show. Uh, this past week, one of the, I, I guess she was a pretty major character. She had a pretty uh, recurring role. She did, in my opinion, very well with the role she was given. Um, She's an incredible athlete. Can't take that away from her. Uh, one of the first, I believe, MMA fighters in the sport, um, Gina Carano, who played Cara Dune on The Mandalorian. Um, this past week, uh, Disney has severed ties with her due to remarks that she had made um, about the Holocaust. And... Uh, it, it was a political statement referring to how modern-day conservatives are pretty much being treated like Jews were in the Holocaust. This did not go well with Disney, not to mention that she had made some other political statements and views on her social media accounts um, that they felt were either inappropriate or, you know, there's a lot going on in this country right now, and, and this is not as much as a political person as I am, this is not a political podcast, but there's quite a bit of upheaval and distrust and, you know, just division in this country. And her tweets and her posts really didn't help that situation. So Disney felt in their right that they no longer needed to you know, attain her services and they let her go. So be that as it may, you know, Disney does what they do. I mean, in, in hindsight, also, a lot of people may not remember, but the director of Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2 and now 3, James Gunn, he was fired from Disney for saying some remarks 
that got him in hot water. Now, mind you, these remarks were, I think, 10 or 15, or I think even 20 years ago when he was just coming up as a filmmaker. And, you know, they were pretty insensitive. They were kind of intense and inappropriate. And, you know, he meant no ill will, according to what he said. He said he was kind of, you know, being a jerk and being young and being immature and, you know, being completely ignorant. And they they fired him and he took, you know, he, he took it on the chin. He realized what he did was wrong and he went his own way to such a degree that when he left Disney, Warner Brothers immediately picked him up and now he's giving us a Suicide Squad movie. So at that time, you know, he really didn't suffer so much career-wise, but to lose him from Guardians of the Galaxy was huge because those first two films were fantastic. He also had quite a bit of input into the Avenger films, Infinity War and Endgame as well. He released a statement. He apologized. And again, those things that he did say were about, I want to say between maybe between 10 and 15 years back. So he addressed it. He admitted it and he apologized. I think six or seven months went by. Disney called him back. They had a conversation about it. And he is now back with Disney. So who's to say, you know, who's to say? Uh, I will say that Gina Carano has not apologized for what she said. She feels what she feels. And I think she has moved forward. And she's now doing a movie with a gentleman by the name of Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative kind of commentator. And I think she's making a movie with them or something along those lines. So be that as it may, you know, good luck to her. But let's see now what happens to the character of Cara Dune. Because in all honesty, I did enjoy her character. So hopefully this will not be such an impactful thing to the show. I highly doubt it. I mean, unless it was Baby Yoda, Grogu, who said something insensitive and (laughs) they got rid of him from the show then that the Mandalorian's not going to make it. But thank God, knock on wood, Baby Yoda is uh, indifferent to politics and he just wants to learn how to use the Force. So good luck to Baby Grogu. Um, jumping back really quick to um, to Zack Snyder's Justice League as well, they do show a photo, and even in the trailer, they show a quick snippet of Jared Leto as the Joker. Sorry, I'm kind of all over the place with this, but I just it, it just dawned on me right now. Um, if you guys have seen Suicide Squad, Jared Leto did play the Joker, and this was the second portrayal of the character after Heath Ledger had died, at least on film. A lot of fans weren't really impressed with it. I honestly hated it. I think Jared Leto is a is a phenomenal actor. But their interpretation of the Joker was easily the worst thing I'd ever seen. Um, I think that Zack Snyder was well aware of that. I think that the director of the first uh, Suicide Squad film, David Ader, I believe is his name, Ader. I mean, the Joker looked like a wannabe club kid gangster. It's the furthest thing from the character. Zack Snyder, you could tell, kind of try to rectify, he tries to rectify this. And if you guys want to see what he looks like, you can go ahead and and give it a look on the trailer. Curious to see how he'll fit into the movie. But again, March 18th, we'll see where we go from here. Uh, So I think that's about it for movie news. So now 
we're going to get down to the nitty gritty and talk about superheroes and their love interests. So I guess it's best for me to start off with, you know, clearly the first couple, the first legit superhero couple um, kind of ever published, which of course would be Superman and Lois. Um, It's funny because, as I said, you know, time and, you know, different eras, things change, things evolve. Superman was created in the late 30s. Excuse me, we'll have some coffee. Uh, Superman was created in the late 30s. So, you know, the world has changed, clearly. Um, And one of the things about Lois Lane, at least of her of her evolution is that in the late thirties to early forties, you know, she was a little bit, I guess, as what they would consider back then, she was a little bit kind of, you know, spicy. Like, you know, she, she wasn't a very conventional woman. She was an investigative reporter. So, you know, she would sometimes question authority, quote unquote authority, or, you know, she would do, or she would go to, to, um, uh, to certain situations where she was told to stay away from, you know, but she's an intrepid reporter, so she always wanted to get the scoop, but that would also lead her into getting into some kind of trouble that Superman would then have to get her out of. And this aspect of her making her the damsel in distress was very, very consistent, I want to say till at least the 60s. Uh, Max Fleischer who did the old school Superman cartoons that I love. The drawings are absolutely beautiful. It's those old cartoons that he's like, you know, up, up and away. Those old, um, beautiful rotoscope cartoons. Lois is pretty much just the damsel in distress all the time, all the time. And it gets tiring because they just kind of made her, I guess, one dimensional, if you look at it. And, Superman would come in, you know, dun 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 dun. dun. You grab her, you beat up the bad guy, and you fly her away. And then at the end of the cartoon, you know, she would kind of give a shout out. She's like, "I wish I could thank my hero, Superman." And Clark Kent would kind of look at the camera through his glasses and like wink at, you know, kind of break the third wall, as they say, and kind of wink at the viewers, like, you know, she doesn't know our secret kind of deal. As the years progressed, Lois has gotten much more interesting um a lot i mean i mean she's very much to such a degree that she is clark's contemporary and the way they've kind of redone her and redefined her i love how she as a journalist tries to defrock lex luthor which is not an easy task uh lex luthor is extremely intelligent brilliant um supervillain in the books and the way they write her to kind of not be outsmarted by him and him getting frustrated by her is really satisfying her relationship with superman you know it's very much changed from that her being a damsel in distress sure she gets into trouble from time to time but she's more of an ally and she kind of helps him i guess either figure something out or she she's just she's kind of like alfred to him in a way that alfred is to batman except that 
Batman and Alfred aren't romantically inclined to one another, or who knows, maybe they are and they haven't told us. It's the 21st century. But anyway, um, Superman and Lois, their dynamic has always been great. One of my favorites, especially in Superman 1 and 2 with Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. I thought uh, Margot Kidder definitely had the chops to be a fantastic Lois, Lois Lane. She's still one of my favorites. She was kind of rough around the edges, a little bit clumsy, but she was dedicated and she was strong. So shout out, man, to uh, Lois and Clark. Superman 1 and 2 is definitely the best aspect of this relationship. So see these two films if you have not. Also, Superman, all-time favorite. My next couple I love because... Unlike Superman, who has, you know, superhuman strength and superhuman powers, this character does have powers, um, but he is by any means super. He's a kid. He's a teenager who grows into a young man. You know, he has very real problems, you know, and that is the dynamic that has made Peter Parker Spider-Man my favorite superhero in the Marvel Universe. Um, I I honestly would say, and I, I think I would find very few people who would disagree with me, that Spider-Man is probably Stan Lee's finest hour. And this is a man who has created or co-created Iron Man, the Hulk, X-Men, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Black Panther, I mean, Thor. The list goes on and on. But to me, Spider-Man is Stan Lee's finest hour. And Stan Lee, before he passed away, said that Spider-Man was his absolute favorite creation with reason because Peter Parker was, he had very real problems, very real problems. You know, in gaining his powers, he lost his uncle for his negligence or not taking his powers serious, which is where that line comes with great power comes great responsibility. And in Peter's life, at least on comic book, he's had two serious girlfriends. And the first of which he lost with Gwen Stacy. Um, that was, I remember reading because I was too young, but I remember that when she, when, when the Green Goblin pretty much he didn't, inadvert he didn't inadvertently murder Gwen Stacy but he was kind of responsible for her death it it was an uproar I mean people were not happy they couldn't believe it because they were kind of building Gwen Stacy up like Lois Lane people were convinced that her and Peter would have a relationship forever like that was that was the the couple and that wasn't the case and back then there was no internet and you know people would write into Marvel Comics and Stanley said that the backlash was people couldn't believe it that they expected her to come back but she never did so in this time frame, while she was gone, you saw Peter suffer, like you saw his heartbreak, you saw, you know, it, how it affected him, how he had to, you know, crawl out of it, no pun intended, until his Aunt May tells him, Peter, did you meet the pretty young lady who moved in next door? Now, he's still kind of in heartbreak, he doesn't want to meet anybody, he's still kind of mourning Gwen Stacy. Until Aunt May is like, you know, I know you've gone through this and you're in pain and you're hurting, Peter, but life goes on. You know, I'm telling you, I lost I lost your uncle. 
life goes on. You know, you can't stay stuck in a rut. So if I'm not mistaken, she says something along the lines of, I, I made a date for you with her. Mary Jane is her name. She's going to come over, whatever the case. So she knocks on the door, and when he opens the door, it's this iconic image of Mary Jane standing in the doorway, and she's looking at Peter, and Peter's in a state of shock, and she's beautiful. And she says something that's historically known in comics, and she says, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. And their relationship went on, you know, ever since. I mean, even in the comics, I think, they were the first couple to be married. It was a huge thing. I remember I had the comic. The comic was like $2. And back in the day, comics were like 75 cents. So this was a quote unquote special issue. And it was hysterical because like Captain America's at the wedding in his Captain America suit. I'm like, bro, really? You couldn't put on a tux and wear the mask? You got to wear your Captain America suit? Um, but it was awesome. It was it was so freaking cool the way they did it. Um total novelty issue but again it was really cool to see and they were married and then as the story progressed you see how they live as a couple like peter making coffee for her in the morning while he's standing on the ceiling you know silly stuff like that that was just brilliant given who he is and how much she loves him you know fiercely which is great so and it's it's they've stayed true to that because they've also had problems so as much as it is a comic book they do have their disagreements. You know, he has moments where he fears for her life because of who he is. So the writing, the, you know, the, the contribution of the writers cannot ever be understated. These guys make the stories fresh and they make them real. Giving Peter and Mary Jane's relationship so much weight and so much enjoyment out of it. Another one of my favorite relationships that I've enjoyed and and this and I'm I'm not even going to try to, you know, say I've known about this all my life because I haven't. But given the first Wonder Woman film, I really enjoyed the dynamic between Steve Trevor and Diana Prince. Um I knew of Steve Trevor. Um me reading Wonder Woman, I read her more in like the 80s and 90s growing up. And she never really had a love interest. I mean, there was a time that her and Batman, there was like a very, how can I put this? Not uneasy, but there was a very intense attraction between Batman and Wonder Woman. And she had seen, you know, after after working alongside Bruce she would see that he really was like the best of humanity. You know, she respected Superman as an equal because he was a god and he had power and very much like her. Not only that, she also knew that Lois was kind of crazy, like, you know, might attack her for trying to take her men, regardless if you're an Amazon kind of crazy. But she knew Lois, you know, she knew and respected Lois. And Batman was just always a loner, you know. So there was an attraction there for a hot minute. But it was Steve Trevor who was positioned to be like the love of Diana's life. And I think they did that. Patty Jenkins did that so, so well in the first Wonder Woman film. Um, it was, to me, believable. It wasn't overdone. It wasn't too sappy. It was a combination of kind of love and respect. They 
continued that going into Wonder Woman 84, which was honestly, as, as, as much as the film, I don't know if it disappointed me or just didn't live up to my expectations. Or I mean, I'm still trying to figure that out. But um, it's something that, again, she, she got right. Like the playfulness and the love of their relationship was very true. And when Diana has to let that go for a second time, you know, the pain that she feels is is believable. Like you see that it's it's going to hurt her. So she has to endure it not once but twice. Uh, and again, it also leads into one of my favorite parts of the film where, you know, out of just anger and heartbreak, she just starts running down a street and then she just jumps into the sky and she begins to learn how to actually fly based on what he told her because they have a conversation earlier in the film where she tells him that she envies humans and their ability to fly because she doesn't yet know how to like control herself in the air and him being a pilot he tells her you know it's not that hard it's just wind and movement and you hear those words playing in her head as she does it and that's where she kind of learns how to fly which is pretty cool at least for me so one of the better parts of the film and, and one of the things that made me appreciate their relationship so much so much so that's definitely uh one that i enjoyed uh another only because it's kind of crazy and it made me laugh so many times at least when i watched the the first two films deadpool with uh ryan reynolds i didn't really expect much from deadpool um, the first film, uh, there was always, um, how can I say this? There was, uh, there was a strong desire to have Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds play the character. He played it in, uh, the Wolverine movie origins, which not one of my favorites. He pretty much played a version of Deadpool, but the end of the film completely screwed that character up. And Ryan Reynolds, one thing I give the guy is that he's ballsy he he just doesn't <clears throat> excuse me he just doesn't give a crap you know he he'll turn around and if something like what he does with green lantern in the deadpool movie like i don't want to give too much away but he did do green lantern for dc comics and again wasn't it was critically panned i didn't think it was that terrible to be honest i thought it could have been a lot worse but Green Lantern is probably considered one of the failures of his career. And he addresses that shit in Deadpool. I think it's Deadpool or Deadpool 2. I think it's Deadpool 2 in the most hilarious of ways. So I was, I was really entertained with the first film and the second film as well. But one of the dynamics of it is I loved his relationship with his girlfriend, Vanessa. It was fun it was real it's young they're like friends and lovers like you believe it, it it was it was a believable relationship in a fantastic movie and fantastic in the sense that it was good but fantastic as well that it's a science fiction movie it was just it was a sweet and real relationship and i enjoyed it thoroughly um i thought their chemistry was great to me it was one of the standouts of the of the two deadpool films I know that now Disney owns Deadpool as well. 
I believe they're making a third movie. I hope they bring Vanessa's character back into the into the fold with the same actress. I believe her name is Morena Bakken, something along those lines. She's absolutely beautiful. You know, she also played, uh, she was in the TV show Gotham. Uh, she played Dr. Leslie Tompkins. Um, she did a great job as well in that TV show, which I gave up on because they just took a little too many liberties and went in too many different directions uh, with the characters. But she's she's a phenomenal actress, beautiful woman. So I hope they bring her back. Um, who else do I have on my list? Another couple that I enjoy very much that I did not expect. Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, as I like to call it, or as I like to call it, the film that nobody saw coming. I enjoyed that film on so many levels. So many levels. And again, I really didn't have a grasp of who the Guardians of the Galaxy were. Um, but walking into that film, I felt incredibly satisfied. And walking out of it, I was a huge fan. They had me hook, line, and sinker. And one of the dynamics of that was the relationship between Zoe Saldana and Chris Pratt as she is Gamora, the adopted daughter of Thanos, and he is Star-Lord, the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy. In this film, their relationship was... It was fun to watch because there were different dynamics to them. You know, they played off each other very, very well. And it just worked. It worked. Um... They weren't my favorite at this point, but their relationship to me was was cemented definitely in Avengers Infinity War because in the moments where Thanos comes to get Gamora or when he kind of kidnaps her or whatever the case you can the acting is brilliant because you could really truly see the love between them even more so later in the film when chris pratt has to react to news that he's given and it was just beautifully done it was very well acted and again this is you know these are actors showing emotion between two characters who are comic book characters but it works it really works um and I'm looking forward to Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I, I hope their relationship continues. Endgame, Avengers Endgame kind of ended their, not ended, but left their relationship at a really strange place. So I'm hoping they kind of do right by them in the third Guardians of the Galaxy film. Now I'm going to jump back to Spider-Man because of the films with Andrew Garfield, which are, which are The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man Part 2. For Emma Stone, who played Gwen Stacy. As a kid who really didn't read much of the Gwen Stacy comics, um, I will say that Emma Stone definitely, at least to me, I feel conveyed what Gwen Stacy was. And you can kind of see why Peter was so enamored by her. Um, the Amazing Spider Man 2 in particular. 
you you see where the relationship is kind of you know just strengthening and how he has to kind of hide his secret from her potentially reveal his secret from her keep her away from danger you know these films were were a lot of fun to watch not my favorite spider-man films but they were fun to watch um but in the amazing spider-man 2 just for how their relationship comes to an end that is worth the price of admission alone and you really see what she meant to peter so cinematically this is definitely one of my favorite like on-screen relationships that was done very 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 well and a big shout out to emma stone who i think up until this point has done an incredible gwen stacy she is legit like the standard unless they recast another actress which i'm sure eventually down the road they may my man captain america steve rogers The f- I've said before that the first Captain America film I thought was fun. One of the aspects of that movie that I enjoyed very much was his relationship with Agent Peggy Carter. She's the woman who kind of helps navigate him through the Super Soldier Project when he's kind of small and skinny and scrawny and she's there and she witnesses become... She witnesses... She, excuse me, she witnesses him become Captain America. Their relationship, I thought, was very well done in the first Captain America film. Uh, the way it ends in the comic, and that's how they are separated through the comics, is that, you know, because he sacrifices himself and then is frozen in time, all that time passes and you know, she ages and he does not. And that dynamic kind of changes the status of their relationship. But he loved her. He always loved her. And they worked this heavy into the cinematic universe. They did it brilliantly with the first film. Uh, in the third film, Civil War, it's also done beautifully. They touch on it again in Avengers Endgame. And the peace and the reward that they give Steve Rogers through his cycle of films, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Civil War, Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, Infinity War, and Endgame. After everything you kind of see him endure, Endgame ends to me in the most satisfying way possible. It wasn't hokey. It wasn't dumb. It was just so very rich and so well done, so tastefully done. I mean, right down to the song. And you'll know what I mean when you see it. It was just one of my favorites, man. One of my absolute favorites. Captain America and Peggy Carter. And that leads me to my man. Tony Stark and his lady Pepper Potts. She probably has one of the most ridiculous names <laughs> for a uh, 
for a comic female comic book character, but I've I've heard worse. I mean, there's actually a supervillain called Condiment Man. So let's give Pepper Potts a break, shall we? Hmm. But in the first Iron Man film, Gwyneth Paltrow played Pepper Potts, and in the comics, Pepper is known as like this redhead kind of you know Lois Laney, spunky you know assistant to Tony Stark. This was again in the 60s, so definitely in 2008 when they released Iron Man, you could tell that Pepper Potts was very much more Tony's equal. Like, she didn't take his shit. You know, she she was honest with him. She helped him, and ultimately there is an attraction that can be denied. Tony falls in love with her. He respects her. And their evolution in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is... Honestly, if you think about it, if you've seen Iron Man 1 and then you watch the end of Endgame, I cannot think of a better couple cinematically. Think about it. Superman and Lois Lane, uh, Batman and Catwoman, anyone. Cinematically, the relationship between Pepper Potts and Tony Stark is probably the richest and the deepest and the most emotional of them all. And it's definitely worth the ride seeing them go through this evolution. Um, Robert Downey Jr., incredibly talented actor. And again, Gwyneth Paltrow, she could have played this character down or she could have kind of, I don't know, just phoned it in if she wanted to. But she really did give balance and she gave depth to Robert Downey's character to Iron Man I mean she even shows up during the fight in Avengers to to back him up and ultimately you know when we see the conclusion of their relationship again it's it's beautiful it's heart pulling you know it's not heart pulling I'm sorry it pulls at your heartstrings it's deep it's emotional it's powerful it's the best, in my opinion. Now, even though it is the best, y'all going to know I'm going to save the best for last, right? Because he's my man. Come on. That handsome billionaire playboy from Gotham City, Bruce Wayne, doesn't have the best luck with women. Got to tell you. But his dedication to what he does doesn't really at least the way they've written him doesn't really leave time for romance. You know, he just doesn't have time for it. Batman is a dedicated crime fighter. There is nothing. You know, I remember reading uh, comic books years ago and they kind of touched on that. Like Alfred is kind of arguing with him. Like he can't do this. You know, you can't do this forever. Um, you know, this is going to take a toll on your body. It's taking away your youth. It's going to wear you out. And you're going to be old and alone. And, you know, who will you be with? Who will be there to care for you when I'm long gone? And so on and so forth. And he just turned around. And he looked at Alfred. He said, the mission is going to be there. He's like, there's always going to be the mission. So he's like driven to a point of almost, I guess, fanaticism that, Fighting crime is all he has, but destiny has a way of showing up and it shows up in the sense of Selena Kyle. 
And Selena Kyle, who is Catwoman, has always been the con- the consistent in his life in the comics. Selena, in her first appearance, she was she was co-created by Bill Finger. Um, she was just that. She was Catwoman, you know, female villain, kind of very tongue in cheek. You know, she was more styled than substance. She dressed as a cat. She was a jewel thief. As the years progressed, they kind of, you know, smoothed out her rough edges, but at the same time applied an additional layer of toughness and edginess to her. Because where Batman sees her as a criminal and, you know, she's a jewel thief and she's involved with... You know, she's worked with the Penguin and the Joker and the Riddler to bring him down in comic book lore. She's been a villain. She's been his his um, his enemy, for lack of better words. But then time changes and the story's evolved. And it's a very, very, very different outcome in the comic book world now where they actually have gotten married. He's revealed to her who he is. He's revealed to her that he's Bruce Wayne. He has led her into the Batcave. He has shown her. And through time and through conflict and through combat and through all of the things that make them so different, he landed up falling in love with her, which I think is awesome. I I think it suits Batman because Batman is a very... Bruce Wayne is a very tortured character. He's an incredibly tortured individual. He has a difficult time bringing people close to him. You know, he brought Robin into his world because Dick Grayson suffered tragedy as he did and he wanted to help. Where he brought in Dick Grayson, soon Jason Todd, the second Robin, followed, who turned out to be not the best decision and there were consequences to that decision. And through reluctance, he brought in a third Robin, Timothy Drake, and then Batgirl would come to join his ranks. So kind of by circumstance, a man who wants nothing more than to be alone starts to create a family that loves and respects him. So Selina was inevitable at some point. And now he legit has like a bat family, which makes the dynamic of the character in the comic books really funky it's just it's really cool very different cinematically i mean if we go as far back as a tv show you have the beautiful and incredible julie newmar and adam west who was batman and if you see any of those old school episodes you guys are going to enjoy it it's so cheesy so fun you know like i say it's good cheese though it's like nacho cheese it's pizza cheese it's good cheese But you see kind of their corny, you know, how can I put it? You know, the way they they fight each other one minute and then the next minute they're sharing like a milkshake. The shit is hysterical. But those were like the seeds that were planted back then to show that Batman and Catwoman have a lot more than just conflict within them. After that, and and then on the TV show, it was Julie Newmore, Eartha Kitt played Catwoman for a minute, and then Lee Merriweather played it as well. But cinematically, the first Catwoman was none other than Michelle Pfeiffer. 
and she looked amazing. She was perfect for like Tim Burton's vision of Batman and that world of Batman that he created. I loved how very physical and you know again they were they were just they were against each other they were enemies and the fight sequences and at one point when batman actually strikes catwoman out of defense cuz the whole time he's you know in their first encounter when they're fighting each other batman is just on the defensive he's protecting himself but ultimately he just like takes a shot at her to throw her back and he does and she falls to the ground and Michelle Pfeiffer's brilliant man she's like how could you hit me I'm a woman and Batman get you know he kind of gets caught up in him so he's like oh my god I'm sorry and as he's going to help her up she kicks him right in his gut off the edge of a building so all of that stuff was very well done it, it's a testament to how they were in the very beginning um, and Michelle Pfeiffer was brilliant in, in doing that um, the movie ended with hopes of there being a sequel with her coming back and her and Michael Keaton kind of facing off again, but that never happened. So Catwoman was kind of put to the side in the films. You had Nicole Kidman, who was a love interest to Val Kilmer. And you had Uma Thurman who played poison Ivy, who was a love interest to George Clooney and that horrible movie. And then you didn't hear of Catwoman again until the Nolan trilogy and we got Anne Hathaway. I was very satisfied with Anne Hathaway's, excuse me, portrayal of Selena Kyle and Catwoman. Um, More so Selena Kyle. I thought she looked great in the suit. I thought she did very good when she was with um, Christian Bale as Batman. I very much did like their exchange. I liked how it stayed true to her character that at some point she would compromise him. She would compromise Batman if it meant her freedom. And that to me was the brilliance of Chris Nolan because it had to happen. Like up until she could trust him completely, she would compromise anyone. She's a survivor. It's nothing personal. She just, she needs to be sure that she's not going to either get caught or get killed. And that cost Batman dearly in the movie The Dark Knight Rises. Ultimately, they, I guess, work out their differences and they work together to, I guess, save the day. But what I love in The Dark Knight Rises is the very ending towards the very ending of the film I want to say it's the last 10 or 15 minutes where towards the end of the film right before the credits you kind of see what happens to Bruce Wayne at least in the Christopher Nolan universe you see where his story kind of ends and in consideration to his relationship with Catwoman, I was incredibly satisfied. It was done quick. It wasn't drawn out. It was kind of left open to your imagination. And it was just done smart 
between three fantastic actors, which are Michael Caine as Alfred, Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne, and Anne Hathaway as Selena Kyle. It was subtle, and it was perfect, done, of course, to the beautiful, brilliant score of the master Hans Zimmer. And that's it for me. Those are my top romantic couples in the world of comic books and in the world of these comic book films that we enjoy so much. To me, these are the most satisfying. So I hope you guys as always get a kick out of it as much as I do. Um, these stories are going to be around for years to come. So let's see where they take it. Let's see how much further down the road they go. Uh, you know, right now in the comic books, Batman has a son. Would that tra translate into movies? You know, We've seen what happens to Tony Stark. He now has a family. Let's see what happens with Peter Parker. And, and you know, there's a TV show called Superman and Lois now that Superman and Lois apparently have two sons. So, you know, the writers are kind of bringing these heroes up to the time, which is a very interesting dynamic. Um, definitely worth checking out. The absolute last thing I wanted to mention Speaking of romantic relationships, WandaVision. WandaVision, WandaVision, WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. In the Avengers, back in the day in the comic books, Wanda and the Vision were a couple. They're actually married. In the films, I think beginning with Age of Ultron, you can kind of see how they're developing a relationship that goes into Avengers Endgame. WandaVision, the TV show, takes place after the events of, of Avengers Endgame. It starts out slow. I will say that. It starts out incredibly slow that literally you, you'll kind of be in season two, episode two or episode three, and you're going to be like, where is this going? If you guys love these movies, if you love the Avengers movies, Holy shit. Start watching WandaVision. It will speed up. I promise. And if you've seen other Marvel movies in the past, you're going to see a lot of things you did not expect. I don't know where this is going, but I'll tell you one thing. It has a hell of a lot of promise. So definitely give it a shot. Once it comes to the conclusion of its episode uh, all of the episodes are played and season one comes to an end I'm definitely going to do a review so you guys give it a look I think they're 30 minute episodes so they go by relatively quick WandaVision oh man where is this going I don't know we will see guys as always I am incredibly thankful for giving me your time I hope you and your loved ones have a wonderful Valentine's Day weekend. Please take care of yourselves. Wash your mask. Wash your mask. Excuse me. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. And please, let's take care of each other like all good superheroes do. And I hope to see you next week. If not, a couple of weeks down the road. But I think I may be having another special guest with me. So stay tuned. And I will see you then for another episode of So Have You Seen. You guys take care of yourself. Thank you for your time. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.